is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Booster shots coming. The government sets soon to recommend just about everybody who's vaccinated get a third one eight months after your second shot. But maybe that's not so easy. This could come with complications when it comes to vaccine mandates. New research shows the youngest kids out there might spread the virus more than we thought. And New York City begins its vaccine mandate today for most indoor areas like restaurants and bars. But who's going to enforce it? We have been hearing about boosters for for a really long time now. Do you think we're at that point where we, you know, need a booster? In my opinion, the jury is still out. And the reason for that is we have not yet seen the phase one and later phase data on uh, the boosters and the need for it. Remember that just more antibody in and of itself doesn't mean better protection. There are a lot of other components of the immune system. Um, And all of this is dependent on, first of all, the FDA approving the vaccine. So in other words, a full license, and then FDA approving and CDC approving the use of this vaccine as a booster. Yeah, I I have to admit, I, I am finding this whole thing rather perplexing because on the one hand, uh, the White House has been trying to to not make the whole issue of vaccinations uh, political. On the other hand, I see today, you know, the news is the White House is recommending boosters uh, af- eight months after your second uh, shot, if you had a two shot uh, uh, vaccine. But since when does the White House make medical recommendations? <laughs> I had the exact same thought. <laughs> so good for you. Um, you're exactly right. The White House doesn't make uh, those kinds of recommendations. Now, they do have a coronavirus vaccine coordinating or task force, and I suspect the messaging probably hasn't been as precise as it should be. And they are doing the right thing in terms of thinking about the eventual need for a booster. If we do get it, what are we trying to do with it? Because it doesn't sound like it's tailored to Delta. It's just the third shot of whatever you got before. So is it like a general immune system ramp up? And then how long does that last us? We don't know. Yeah, we have no idea. And you you raise an important point in that the terminology gets confusing. So for people who are immunocompromised, and you heard uh, on last Friday of them getting a third dose, that's called an additional dose. For the same vaccine that we would get as a booster dose, that's called a late booster. For a new variant vaccine that would be used as a booster, that's called a variant-specific booster. So it does get, uh, it does get confusing. Part of the problem here is that, number one, the world's on fire with this pandemic. Number two, we're learning as we go. As I've said many times, we're flying this airplane while we're building it. And number three, time, which may well uh, finally dictate that boosters will be necessary. But in my opinion, it's a little early yet. 
Well, I mean, the White House seems to be pinning a lot of its argument, maybe solely its argument, on data coming from Israel. Yeah. Uh, but I always was under the understanding that, that there were issues with that data because it was a very small number. Maybe those numbers have now grown. But is it the case that are, are, is Israel seeing uh, a significant increase in fully vaccinated people not becoming infected or even symptomatic, but seriously ill and or dying? Yeah, that's a good question, because the Israeli data, as you're pointing out, are to some degree discrepant from those same kind of data that we see here in the U.S., in Canada, in Scotland, in England. And you, you then begin to wonder whether you're seeing data that is discrepant because of differences in study design and confounding. You know, on the one hand, they, they very quickly developed high immunization rates because they rolled the vaccine out faster than about anybody. So more time has elapsed. On the other hand, they're an older, they tend to be an older, sicker population, which is the population they're seeing so-called breakthrough disease. We haven't seen the drop-off yet in the biggest things we're trying to prevent, which is hospitalizations and deaths with these vaccines, doses one and two. A third would be, what, just trying to break transmission, which is a good thing, but you would still have to get people to go and take that third dose. And some people won't even take the first. Right. I mean, that's the interesting thing is, uh, you know, we're aware of people prematurely going and getting the third dose at the same time that we have people we can't convince to get the first dose. So what would we do if we were really wise? We would say everybody gets the vaccine, everybody masks, and we have reasonable social distancing, but we can't get the population to reliably do that. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I I think probably the biggest concern that some people have with this news that it looks like, at least according to some, that they may need a a, a third shot is, okay. so where does it end? Is it a is that it that, you know, it used to be with the Johnson Johnson one and done with the two shot one. It was two and done. Well, is it now three and done? Is it going to be four and done? Is it going to be yeah. every year, every five months, every time there's a new variant? When does it end or does it? Yeah, uh, well, we, we gave up. We gave up that possibility of eliminating or controlling this. Um, and so you're right. We are uh, very likely. This is speculation, right? Because I don't know what's going to happen a year from now or a week from now. But very likely we will continue to see the emergence of variants. And if we're lucky, this will become eventually more flu-like, in which case we periodically, whether that'll be every year or every two years, have to revaccinate. Dr. Gregory Poland, director of the Vaccine Research Group at the Mayo Clinic. In my opinion, the jury is still out. And the reason for that is we have not yet seen the phase one and later phase data on uh, the boosters and the need for it. Remember that just more antibody in and of itself doesn't mean better protection. There are a lot of other components of the immune system. Um, and all of this is dependent on, first of all, the FDA approving the vaccine. So in other words, a full license and then FDA approving and CDC approving the use of this vaccine as a booster. Yeah, I I have to admit, I I am finding this whole thing rather perplexing because on the one hand, 
the White House has been trying to to not make the whole issue of vaccinations uh, political. On the other hand, I see today, you know, the news is the White House is recommending boosters uh, eight months after your second uh, shot, if you had a two shot uh, uh, vaccine. But since when does the White House make medical recommendations? (laughs) I had the exact same thought. (laughs) So good for you. Um, You're exactly right. The White House doesn't make uh, those kinds of recommendations. Now, they do have a coronavirus vaccine coordinating or task force. And I suspect the messaging probably hasn't been as precise as it should be. And they are doing the right thing in terms of thinking about the eventual need for a booster. If we do get it, what are we trying to do with it? Because it doesn't sound like it's tailored to Delta. It's just the third shot of whatever you got before. So is it like a general immune system ramp up? And then how long does that last us? We don't know. Yeah, we have no idea. And you you raise an important point in that the terminology gets confusing. So for people who are immunocompromised, and you heard uh, on last Friday of them getting a third dose, that's called an additional dose. For the same vaccine that we would get as a booster dose, that's called a late booster. For a new variant vaccine that would be used as a booster, that's called a variant-specific booster. So it does get uh, it does get confusing. Part of the problem here is that number one, the world's on fire with this pandemic. Number two, we're learning as we go. As I've said many times, we're flying this airplane while we're building it. And number three, time, which may well. Uh, finally dictate that boosters will be necessary. But in my opinion, it's a little early yet. Well, I mean, the White House seems to be pinning a lot of its argument, maybe solely its argument, on data coming from Israel. Yeah. Uh, but I always was under the understanding that, that there were issues with that data because it was a very small number. Maybe those numbers have now grown. But is it the case that our, our, is Israel seeing uh, a significant increase in fully vaccinated people not becoming infected or even symptomatic, but seriously ill and or dying? Yeah, that, that's a good question, because the Israeli data, as you're pointing out, are to some degree discrepant from those same kind of data that we see here in the U.S., in Canada, in Scotland, in England, and you you then begin to wonder whether you're seeing data that is discrepant because of differences in study design and confounding. You know, on the one hand, they they very quickly developed high immunization rates because they rolled the vaccine out faster than about anybody. So more time has elapsed. On the other hand, they're an older, they tend to be an older, sicker population, which is the population they're seeing so-called breakthrough disease. We haven't seen the drop-off yet in the biggest things we're trying to prevent, which is hospitalizations and deaths with these vaccines, doses one and two. A third would be, what, just trying to break transmission, which is a good thing, but you would still have to get people to go and take that third dose. And some people won't even take the first. Right. I mean, that's the interesting thing is, uh, you know, we're aware of people prematurely going and getting the third dose at the same time that we have people we can't convince to get the first dose. So what would we do if we were really wise? We would say everybody gets the vaccine. 
everybody masks and we have reasonable social distancing, but we can't get the population to reliably do that. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I, I think probably the biggest concern that some people have with this news that it looks like, at least according to some, that they may need a a, a third shot is, OK, so where does it end? Is it a is that it? The, you know, it used to be with the Johnson Johnson one and done with the two shot one. It was two right. and done. Well, is it now three and done? Is it going to be yeah. four and done? Is it going to be yeah. every year, every five months, every time there's a new variant? When does it end or does it? Yeah, uh, well, we, we gave up. We gave up that possibility of eliminating or controlling this. Um, and so you're right. We are uh, very likely. This is speculation, right? Because I don't know what's going to happen a year from now or a week from now. But very likely, we will continue to see the emergence of variants. And if we're lucky, this will become eventually more flu-like, in which case we periodically, whether that'll be every year or every two years, have to revaccinate. Dr. Gregory Poland, director of the Vaccine Research Group at the Mayo Clinic. Vaccine mandates are already a touchy subject, so will the boosters make them even more complicated and difficult to enforce? Are bars and restaurants, other spots, going to check for a third shot? Not just the two. Enforcement seems like it could be tricky. Hank Greeley, director of the Center for Law and Biosciences at Stanford Law School. Hank, how do you enforce booster shots? Um, With great potential for confusion and even chaos, I hope we do it clearly. Uh, I would note, though, we still don't have a statement about a recommendation for boosters. It sounds like it's coming out. I heard your earlier segment with Dr. Pollock, and I'm sort of on his side of thinking this may be a little premature, but we need to see what exactly the White House or CDC or FDA has to say about all this. But let's assume that they do go ahead and, and recommend for people without compromised immune systems a booster. What happens then? Well, it depends on who's setting the rules for any given vaccine mandate. And right now, that's kind of up in the air. If New York City does a citywide mandate, it's New York City that decides. If a grocery store decides to have its own mandate, it's a grocery store that decides. Stanford, my employer, has a mandate. It decides what's fully vaccinated or not. The potential here for confusion is huge. Uh, My strongest advice is keep it simple, stupid. Because um, <laughs> we're so good at doing that, yeah, yeah. yeah. The yeah. I mean, it, been crystal clear all through this. Yeah, but but I, I do think the the corollary to that. First, be really clear on what you mean. Uh, second, think through what you're doing it for. Are you trying to protect the people who come into the space from getting infected or getting sick? Are you trying to protect the overall population by? encouraging people to get vaccinated and fully vaccinated? Are you trying to protect the people in the space who are not already vaccinated? Uh, Who are you trying to protect? And that I think could make a difference. But right now, based on what we know at this point, uh, which is very little about the importance and efficacy of the booster shots, um, I'd say don't require boosters, say, you know, If you've had two shots of the two-shot ones or one shot of the one-shot one, that's good enough. Anything else makes life 
more complicated, probably for not much reward. Yeah, I was thinking about that, too, because you look at New York, and we're going to talk about them later because they're starting there to go inside. you got to show it. But they're like if you're on your road to your second, you only have to have the one, whereas I think San Francisco doing a similar thing, but they say, no, fully vaccinated to come in. Uh, so we've already got two different things on two different coasts. Right. And, you know, within San Francisco, there could be a store that says, uh, no, I want free. Um, that kind of confusion should be avoided. And I think you get so much protection, even you get significant protection, even from the first dose of a two dose vaccine. Uh, I would err on the side of uh, I would lean toward the side of saying you got a shot, you can come in. Well, you know, this sort of reminds me, and I should point out, not from personal experience, of the early days of the country when, you know, different states had different currencies, right? And and yep. and it was totally confusing because one set of currency in Texas, another in in uh, well, Texas, of course, in the early stages weren't there, but you know, New York had one, Massachusetts had another, and in the end, the, you had to have a national one. But that's something this country doesn't seem to want to do. Other countries do. Right. I mean, we don't have a national driver's license. We don't. We did for a while have a national speed limit. We don't have that anymore. Um, there are a lot of things that we leave up to states. But this gets even more confusing because the main action here on the requiring on the mandates hasn't been at the state level. It's been at the city or county level or it's been at the individual school or store or sporting facility owner level. So the potential for confusion is great. One thing about having a, a single federal law is you've got one rule that everybody can figure out and follow, but there are some advantages also. There are some legal reasons that the federal government might find it difficult to do that, but there are also some advantages in letting different places experiment. Um, being clear is really important though. So anybody who does this should have on websites and doors, here's what we mean by fully vaccinated. I, I have to say, though, to me, this is a bit of a, this doesn't worry me as much as how good the proof of vaccination actually is. You know, I've had to show vaccination cards a couple of times. My vaccination card would be so easy to forge. Right. And we, we already have reports of people buying and selling. And the Customs Service busted a whole bunch of phony vaccine cards coming in from some company in China. Um, well, even so, the digital ones are, are not foolproof because it depends who's entering the data. That's right. So Stanford made me upload something to convince them that I'm vaccinated. I uploaded a photo of my vaccine card. Well, that's nice, but I could have forged <laughs> that vaccine card, right? Yeah. All right. Hank Greeley, Center for Law and Biosciences, Stanford Law. Hank, thanks. A new study from Canada shows younger kids with COVID-19 may be more likely to spread the virus compared to their older siblings. While the data showed children 14 to 17 were most likely to be infected, the kids 3 and younger were most likely to spread it. Dr. Matul Kapadia, Medical Director, UC San Francisco Pediatric Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Clinic. So, Doctor, why is it the babies? You know, uh, the, 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 the study that was just published today showed us that um, there was a you know, we, we've, we've really changed our perspective in terms of the role of kids. And this study showed that in the household setting, um, when kids, particularly younger than three years old, were the primary index case, so the first, um, first ones that had symptoms or tested positive for COVID, had a larger role in terms of transmitting that virus to other members in the household. So that was one of the big changes that we had. And there's a lot of different reasons that we can um, conceivably think of, right? There, there are kids um, in the house with their parents, with their siblings, 
they're not masking, they're in close contact. Younger children, particularly less than three, are more likely to put objects in their mouth, are much more likely to be in very close contact, particularly with oral and, and, and nasal contact with their parents. So it's, it, it is fairly logical to think of kids playing that role, particularly in the household setting. So, you know, it, it is interesting. You're talking about a change of perspective, because I remember early on in this pandemic when we had various experts on the show. And originally, when the subject of children, young children came up, inevitably, the response we got was, oh, you know, kids, it doesn't really matter. They don't they don't really spread the infection. They don't get sick. They don't get seriously ill. And now all that seems to be upside down. We know that children do get sick. Some do get seriously ill. Some do die. Uh, and now it turns out that they also spread it. So what has changed? Is it just numbers that because more people have COVID, we are now starting to see in the uh, child population what we didn't see before? Or has something else changed? I think there's a couple of things. So first, when we were kind of having that perception of the role of kids, it was during a time when we were really on lockdown and kids were not really going outside the house. So there was limited interaction with members in the society or the community outside of the whole outside of the house. And we now know that that was probably a larger part in terms of the decreased risk of transmission to kids. The second part is the study that was published was published in from June to December of 2020. So that was a time where we did not have the Delta variant or really any other significant variants. That was also a time when we um, did not have vaccinations for the large majority of people. And so when we're kind of comparing apples to apples or apples to oranges, you have to understand the context of where the evidence or the, where the research is coming. We now know with the Delta variant, there's a much more larger role for kids in terms of both getting infected and in transmission. Um, the most recent um, evidence that I saw was about 1,900 children in the United States are hospitalized in the, um, as of Monday. So certainly there's a different role that kids are playing with the variations that we have seen in terms of this virus as it has continued to propagate. Dr. Matul Kapadia, Medical Director, UC San Francisco Pediatric Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Clinic. Thanks. Coming up after a short break, the Big Apple tries to take a big bite out of COVID. New York City is now enforcing its indoor vaccine mandate. You want to go to eat at your favorite restaurant or, you know, grab a beer at your favorite bar? Well, you better show proof of vaccination. Could be troublesome when it comes to enforcement. Jeff Garcia Hernandez, owner of Montemore Coffee and Wine Bar in the Bronx, president of the New York State's Latino Restaurant Bar and Lounge Association. So, Jeff, are you checking for the vaccine status? Um, today, actually, the mandate, you know, from the mayor uh, starts <clears throat> and we should be checking that. Correct. Um, obviously, there's no enforcement yet. So compliance, um, I guess, doesn't have to be strictly enforced. However, we are and want to get folks accustomed that we need to start asking for the vaccine card and uh, ID. In some cases, if you have the Excelsior Pass and the New York City Key um, app, you can download the information and you can show us that and that would work. However, like you said earlier, we are not happy about this. We don't believe that restaurants, especially after this pandemic and after we've had to deal with, uh, take this pandemic on our back, so to speak. Why? Because we are the ones that had restrictions from the beginning. We had capacity restrictions. We had to have mass restrictions inside. We had to do contact tracing inside. Um, and that really hurt our businesses. And in New York, we had the toughest mandates in the state. You know, our surrounding areas always had a lot more capacity than us. Um, we, uh, they didn't have to have 
the same rules and regulations as we did in Manhattan or in New York City. So again, we're being asked in New York City again to take this, um, you know, uh, pandemic and this COVID on our backs and the backs of restaurants again. We've heard, though, from from some others who have said, OK, I actually kind of like it because at least I can point to the mayor's office and say they're making me do this. I'm not trying to be vaccine police, but, hey, it's off my back. So is it still a burden on you, though, to have somebody, what, at the front of the door? Do you have to hire an extra person? I mean, how is it working where it's going to be more of a problem than just saying, you know what? The rules are the rules. I didn't make them. That guy did. Blame him, not me. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, I think it's easy to it's uh, it, that it's easy to say that, but that's not the point here. If the point is that we want to vaccinate people, what we did, and we're like the first in the nation to do this, um, from what I understand, is that I partnered with one of our commissioners here, uh, Commissioner Roberto Perez from the Community uh, Community Affairs Commission of New York City. I called him up. I said, listen, I think that what we need to do, if the problem is vaccinating people, why don't we link up? Why don't we get the city to set up locations. Our restaurant owners are willing to give up their space to do micro vaccination sites at our restaurants. And we feel that we have a better pulse on our communities. And we started it last week in in Bronx, New York, the best restaurant in the Bronx called Boca. And we were able to vaccinate approximately 100 people in three days. Their vaccination sites maybe did one or two a day. So it goes to show you that when you bring city government and the community and local business together that if, if the idea is to get people vaccinated that's the way to do it okay but, but let's but, the vaccine police right but let's get back to the, the vaccine police so jeff i mean what happens next month when there's so-called enforcement how is that enforcement going to actually go down oh i guess they're going to send inspectors to do surveillance on a place or check um i don't know with what authority uh health inspector has to go up to a customer and be like well let me see your credentials I, I don't know if they have the legal authority to do that or a customer can just say i don't have to show you do you um, get do you get a fine if you if someone walks in from the health department and you know they see that that one of your places is not checking patrons for vaccination status my understanding is is obviously if they can prove that you have let in unvaccinated folks into your restaurant that the fines begin at a thousand dollars. That is correct. And again, restaurants just do not have many, especially in minority neighborhoods, do not have the capacity to be able to do this. We don't have major D's at the door. We don't have hosts at the door, you know, like these bigger chain or restaurants, you know, fancier restaurants. So a lot of our minority restaurants don't have the capacity to do this. And that's the difficult part of this. Yeah, I was going to say, how do you think places are going to check? There are some who can have someone right there. Uh, or the host or the hostess can can look at your card. Otherwise, is it just, hey, get to the table, and before I take your order, I got to see some kind of proof and, and show me it on the phone, show me your paper card, whatever it is? Because, I mean, this well, this is not like the stadium that can just scan everybody's <laughs> QR code, right? Well, that's that's a, uh, you know, that's the gray area here. Like, what, at what point are you inside versus getting checked? And what happens is you're a busy place and somebody, you know, slips through. Well, I know that we can allow people to sit outdoor, but when they have to use the bathroom, they have to put on the mask and go to the bathroom. What if that person slips through the cracks and then ends up staying inside? If you have a busy place, like how do you police that? Will you follow the person all the way to the bathroom and back? So I think the city, this wasn't really well thought out. And I think it's a lot easier said than done to try and implement. And again, I think that the real way to do this is 
by the pilot program that we set up with the city. What do you do, by the way, Jeff, if, if a patron comes to you and you ask for proof of vaccination and they say, no, I don't feel like it. I, I've been vaccinated. I don't want to show you anything. What do you do? Then unfortunately, sir, I mean, based on this mandate, you can't allow them in. But, uh, right yes, but, uh, but, but, you, but I was going to say, I mean, how many store owners, uh, restaurant owners in particular, are going to be willing to turn away patrons because the patron doesn't want to or can't produce that documentation? A hundred percent agree with you. I, it, it, it's going to be a very difficult, burdensome task to try and implement. And I hope and I hope that between now and the 13th, the mayor will look at this and say, you know what, let's go another route. I think that's the right thing to do. I think that, you know, if getting people vaccinated, you know, is what he wanted to do. I think the last few weeks, there's been so much talk about it that a lot more people are getting vaccinated. And that in itself, I'm hoping that between now and the 13th, he says, you know what? I think we're good. I think we need to continue this approach and don't worry about the mandate. That's what I'm hoping for. Jeff Garcia Hernandez, owner of Montemore Coffee and Wine Bar in the Bronx, president of New York State Latino Restaurant Bar and Lounge Association. Jeff? Thanks. The pandemic has changed the way Americans work. Businesses, in some cases, becoming more flexible with scheduling. It'd be nice to just work when you want. Rick Cobb, executive vice president at Keystone Partners in Chicago with WBBM's Rob Hart. What's most important first is to think about why you want to do this. And and you already have the reason. It might be you have elder care issues, you're transitioning child care, uh, you've simply, the, the commute, you're uncomfortable about the uncertainty of the pandemic. Your, your reasons you can articulate. The challenge is to understand the employer's perspective, and that's not something people typically do in a negotiation. So you have to spend some time thinking about what does that boss how do they feel and whether they're going to be their concerns and insecurities, because that's really what you're dealing with, not your own agenda. So that's the first thing. And then I think the second thing is to clearly articulate your reason in a, in a practical way uh, that makes sense. And then when you when you get to the actual proposal of the request that you make, that's actually probably the hardest thing for most people to do. They, they will fantasize or dream about the conversation, create these dialogues, but they never actually get to the conversation because it seems to be they make it bigger in their head than it needs to be. So you have to be very matter of fact and articulate your 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 concern or your issue, your your motivation for asking and then ask if they would consider it. The consideration is important because you don't want to put somebody in a corner where it's a win or lose situation if you can avoid it. We don't want this to be about ego. We want this to be about a collaborative opportunity for you to be able to do the work. And then, uh, most importantly, have a plan for how you're going to address what you perceive your boss's concerns to be. You, know, you can negotiate it in terms of it being, I think that the things that I need to do where I'm in the office are these and these and these, and here's how I would suggest we might deal with those, and here are the things that I think I can do as well, if not better, when I'm working from home and articulate those. And then set some goals for the both of you that say, if I meet these standards, uh, then, you know, th- then I think that would be acceptable, and then get their feedback. California's congressional members rank among the most frequent users of a House proxy voting rule that enables them to avoid travel during the pandemic and have a colleague vote on their behalf. 
The Brookings Institution finds that more than 70 percent of California's House members, that's 38 of 53, have voted by proxy in the last year, compared with about 60 percent for all House members. Now, Democrats say proxy voting has allowed representatives to do their jobs while keeping themselves and their families safe from COVID-19. Republicans say that representatives should be required to be physically present to vote. And if it's safe enough for essential workers to be on the job, well, then it is safe enough for Congress to meet in person. This is an Odyssey original. You can find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thank you.